Well, thanks everyone, all you hardy Minnesotans for being here. Welcome to Gospel of Grace. I think I'll just open up with prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today to celebrate who you are and to sit under your means of grace. And I do pray, Lord, as we study your scriptures, that you would use them to conform us more to the image of your Son. Help us to think well today about prophecy in the book of Revelation, that we'd understand what the prophets were and what they are not, and that we'd be people who are not led astray. And we'd be able to help others as well understand who speaks for God. We pray that you would accomplish that through us and for us, all for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now today, I'm going to be doing a little bit of review just at the very beginning to get our minds back into the swing of things with Revelation 13. Recall, we had left off where we were talking about the false prophet. And in a sense, you have two beasts that are lining up with Satan. You have the beast that comes up out of the sea. Of course, that's the Antichrist. And then you have the beast that came up out of the earth, and that's the false prophet. And I had mentioned last time that the role of the false prophet is much like that of the Holy Spirit in a twisted and distorted sense, in that the Holy Spirit's role is to bring believers and others to confession of Christ. In other words, it also regenerates and brings people to faith for the first time. Well, the role of the false prophet is to bring about the confession and worship of the Antichrist. And so what I did is in the last segment that we were in, I talked about how the false prophet is really a culminating force of all of the false prophets that have come against the people of God. And so if you recall, I put up this little slide here. Notice the diagram. You have the true prophets of God up on the top as opposed to the timeline of the false prophets. And it all culminates in Jesus Christ or Antichrist in his false prophets. So we'd left off there. Then I had mentioned that there's a need to judge prophecy during the church age now. We know in the 70th week of Daniel, there's going to be a plethora of false prophets and false Christs that culminate in the Antichrist. Because remember, there's 10 horns that line up with the Antichrist. Well, during the church age, there's also a need to judge teaching. And Jesus instructed us in that in Matthew 7, 15. Notice here in verse 16, he said, you will know them by their fruits. Okay, now we define fruits as what? Well, we're going to be able to discern who is a true spokesman for God by both their doctrine and their deeds. That's how we're going to judge true teaching. Okay, so what I did is I showed you an illustration of this from the Old Testament, how doctrine and deeds are both distorted by false prophets. Notice here, let me read this passage, Jeremiah 23, 13 through 14. The prophet said, Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, remember that's the northern ten tribes, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. So stop there. That's false doctrine. Okay, and so that's why, notice the underline, when Jeremiah says that he saw an offensive thing, this is God speaking through him, the first offensive thing was that there was false doctrine. To lead the people of God away from Yahweh to a false God is false teaching. But notice also, there's also false deeds. Verse 14, he said, Also, among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. Now, here's their false deeds, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hand of evildoers, so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants like Gomorrah. So we see then that the doctrine and deeds of the false prophets were discernibly wicked, leading people away from Yahweh and leading people away from his precepts and what he has commanded. Now, we see there's a need to judge prophecy in the church today. But what we want to do is discern the difference between prophets, that is, prophets who have an office, who speak as authoritative spokesmen for God, and prophecy in which people are giving valid implications and applications of revelation that's already been given. And my claim, and I know Bob feels the same from Scripture, is that the latter case is the only that's an option today. We don't have modern-day prophets who give us revelation, new revelation from God today. Okay, so let me show you an evidence, some evidence of this. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 33. Here Paul is talking about 
the use of gifts in the church, and one of them that has to be addressed is that of prophesying. But as we read about the prophets here, they are not prophets in the sense of holding an office where they're speaking new revelation for God, but those who are giving valid implications and applications of revelation that have already been given, namely through Scripture. Let me read 1 Corinthians 14, 29-33. Paul says, let two or three prophets speak. Okay, now let me stop there. The prophets here would be used not in the formal sense of the office of a prophet, but more generically as one who prophesies. Now, how do we know that? Well, turn your attention back, if you will, open your Bibles. I'm going to show you 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24. And I'll show you evidence that indeed this is not a person who has the office of a prophet, but rather one who prophesies, bringing valid implications and applications of Scripture. Again, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 24. We'll just back up five verses. So 1 Corinthians 14, I'm sorry, if I said 15, I meant 1 Corinthians 14, 24. Here Paul says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. Now notice the phrase there, if all prophesy. Certainly Paul is not referring to the majority of prophets, that is people who hold to the office of prophet, but he's talking about the congregation as a whole at Corinth. And so he's contrasting the gift of prophecy with that of tongues. And the idea is if someone is speaking in tongues, unless someone knows that particular language, it's going to be unintelligible to them. And so how will it edify the body? But prophesying, if all do that in the corporate body of Christ, which is, by the way, what we're doing here right now, bringing valid implications and applications of Scripture, if we do that, it'll be edifying for all who are there, plus any newcomer who may come. Why? Because it's gospel-centric. And so right there, the all-prophesying shows that it's not the office of a prophet, but it's the entire congregation that, in fact, has the right to prophecy. And this is what Bob has been teaching us regarding the priesthood of every believer. Uh, In fact, Bob, why don't you mention the priesthood of every believer and how important that is? Yes. I talked about that in Canada. Exactly. My next article, I just finished, needs proofreading, but it'll be coming out on this topic. And Luther used this verse, these verses, to rebuke Rome. Rome said, we'll be the mistress, we'll do the teaching, right. and you have to obey us. You, you have to be silent. It's only us. And Luther rebuked that using this and said that any believer who has the gospel right can rebuke the Pope Amen. or the councils or the creeds or the prelates and bishops and archbishops, any of them, if they don't have the gospel right, we can say, no, that's not right. Be silent in the church. Right, right. Okay? So this article that we'll be publishing, I'll be proving that from this section, plus other six other functions right. of, of uh, priests that are for all believers. Yeah, and that yeah. was a key issue of the Reformation. Now, the question we need to ask is why isn't that taught today in evangelical churches? And I think uh, the reason it's been neglected is that church authorities like having power. And and we've seen that with a lot of other things where people are challenging pastors. Uh, That's not the gospel. Well, we know what we're doing. We have the authority. You'd be quiet. Now, when it says let the others judge, it doesn't say let the other bishops or the other church councils. It's the other believers. And so way back in the 80s, uh, I wanted to implement this in the church. And so when I've been a pastor in the 80s, we started doing that. Some of you were there. We had like 12 of us in a little circle we teach the bible but anybody brian you were there uh and uh 
we'd say, no, wait, that's not right. So you may speak and help us all learn and understand, but we do have to judge it. Right. Amen. But it's the church, not some bishop somewhere. Exactly. Okay. Well, what's happened now is Protestants have pretty well learned from Rome, and now they want bishops, councils, creeds to be unjudgeable and all the church to be silent. Right. And that's a rebuke of Luther. That's right. And even Lutherans do that. People who claim to believe Luther silence the church and say, you don't get to listen to anything but our creed. Creeds are not directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. The creed writers were not prophets. They weren't apostles. They hadn't seen the resurrected Christ. They only speak for God if what they say is biblical. But the creedalists will say, no, we've spoken 300 years ago. You cannot judge us. Be silent. So with Protestants like that, who needs Rome? (laughs) Exactly. So I'm going to publish an article and get myself in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Why stop now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let me just emphasize how important that is from a congregation's perspective because we're blessed with pastors that are preaching this. And it's important for us as a congregation to challenge them if we believe that there's something that they're not teaching correctly. Yeah. Albeit, all may it be, we'll be wrong 99.9% of uh, the time. I don't okay. know about that. But, but still, <laughs> That's not true. But still yeah. if no, I know. <laughs> but still, uh, you need to take advantage of, of that, that. And That's if right. you're unclear on every, we have the opportunity every week to uh, be clear in our heads about what is being preached. That's why sometimes you think that we're getting bogged down in a certain area, but in, in, in actuality we're not because we're letting people be clear in their heads what the Word is actually saying. That's right. Amen. Thank Amen. You. And somebody, yeah. uh, anybody may have a better reading. That's right. That's and right. so what we're trying to do, what Eric is teaching us is, and I was in a seminary class that did this. It was so wonderful. Yeah. Is that we're reading because the inspired text will not change. Yeah. And if we read, well, wait a second, isn't that what Ezekiel said? Isn't that what Luke said? Isn't that what Paul said? And we read together and we learn and we grow and we practice the priesthood of every believer. Amen. And that that's so essential. So as long as I've been a pastor and started this in the 80s, always insisted that we have a Sunday school with a mic that goes around. Yeah, amen. Because that's where we practice this. Right. And, you know, Bob, I, I love that. The the priesthood of every believer, he did that message. You could probably pull it up online. I mean, he lays out seven things that a priest did in the Old Testament that we do now. And th- those categories come from Luther. But I want you to understand that these are biblical categories. Rome's repudiation of the priesthood of every believer is not a repudiation of Luther, but it's a repudiation of the Scriptures. First uh, Peter, you can read First Peter 2, verses 5 through 10, and you'll see the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer specifically taught. Well, if that's true, then we have the right to judge doctrine. And that's the idea here in 1 Corinthians 14. In fact, notice in red when it says, let others pass judgment. Let's think long on this for a moment. Think about this. Would you pass judgment on Isaiah? Do you and I say, well, I don't know if I'm going to go along with Isaiah there. Well, no, we don't do that, do we? Because that revelation is from God. That's an authoritative spokesperson. But what's being judged here is the applications, implications of Scripture from the community. Okay, so that's the idea of prophesying. Now, let's read further. Notice in verse 30, it says, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, here's order, it says the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Again, prophets here is used, the the prophets, the term is being used not in the technical office sense like apostles and prophets, but in in, in the more loose sense of those who prophesy. 
Okay. We would call yeah. that functional terminology. Functional terminology. Okay. Or you could say the same thing, the prophesying one. Exactly. If we did it with a participle, Amen. the prophesying one. So Greek uses a noun, That's prophet, right. but it doesn't mean it's technical, That's it's right. functional. Yeah, and again, evidence of what we've just claimed here is, again, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24, where it says, all may prophesy. Well, obviously, you don't have the entire church being every single person a prophet holding that office. Are you with me? So let's continue. He says, okay, the, pro the spirits are subject to the prophets. Verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, back up in verse 30, notice the underlying portion. He says, but if a revelation is made. Now, what's interesting is you and I have to define what does Paul mean by revelation here? Revelation is used in one of two ways. Sometimes revelation has to do with valid implications and applications of Scripture, as I will show you from Ephesians 1. But other times, it's used in the stricter sense of new revelation, new mysteries that are being revealed by an authoritative prophet. Okay, now let me show you how we can distinguish, and in fact, that there are two different types of revelation. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. Again, turn your Bibles, please, if you will, to Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. And I'm going to show you here that revelation is used in the broader sense of having knowledge about who Christ is from the Scriptures. That is, from the revelation that we have from both our Old and our New Testament writers. That would be the category. We see that in Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. Notice Paul says, do not cease, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now stop there. Notice this revelation is not some new mystical understanding. It's not some new revelation about some future event, but it's strictly revelation about the knowledge of whom? Of Christ, of God's will. Well, notice he says, Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart, remember the heart really stands for the whole person, may be enlightened so that you will know, so this is cognitive, what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, what are the, our inheritance in the saints? Well, it's the results of the gospel. So the revelation that he wants them to have is knowledge about what we have in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's revelation. So notice that's not revelation that comes from the prophet in the sense of new information, but it's revelation about what God has revealed about messianic salvation. Now, that's the first category. Now, let me show you how Paul very fluently will switch to a different usage of Revelation in Revelation 3. Turn your Bibles to, Revel or, excuse me, not Revelation 3, Ephesians 3, verses 2 through 5. Ephesians 3, verses 2 through 5, you'll see Paul use Revelation in the strict sense of getting new information, revealing mysteries, the mysteries of God. And that comes from the prophets who hold the office of prophet and also the apostle. Ephesians 3, 2 through 5, Paul says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, notice verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight. Notice it's the apostle's insight into the mystery of Christ. So stop there. Notice this revelation has to do with the mystery of Christ that was revealed. This is new information that was formerly concealed that is now being revealed through an apostle. And he continues and he explains, verse 5, he says, "...which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed." to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Okay? Now, stop there. See how Paul can use in Ephesians 1, Revelation, in the sense of we all can have valid implications and applications of Scripture, knowledge about who the Messiah is and the benefits to us. But in Ephesians 3, he uses Revelation in the strict sense of new information that's given to the apostles and prophets. Okay? So if we apply that then, to this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 
we can see that prophesying also can be used in two different ways. It can be used in the strict sense of a prophet giving new revelation, but it also can be used by Paul in the more broad sense of deriving valid implications and applications of what God has already revealed through the scriptures. Does everyone see that? Yeah, Eric. I'm trying to, you know, kind of think of words that, because this is important. It is. Yeah. And what I just, I'm going to throw this out is, is that the second one, the Ephesians 3, is prophetic revelation. And that the first one is more of a discernment revelation where we discern what the prophets or the apostles have said. Very well said. Yeah, well said. And the reason I'm laboring this point is why do people fall for false prophets today? Well, because they don't discern the different categories. They believe that prophecy is still valid. I left a ministry not many years ago because the majority on the board that I was working with believed in modern-day prophets. Well, if you have modern-day prophets, well, now you have people that can give new binding revelation. Well, there goes sola scriptura. What I'm going to show you is that we don't have any modern-day apostles and prophets. So that's what I'm building towards. And the reason I'm doing so is because all the false prophets of all of the ages are going to culminate in the false prophet. So the way to protect the church now is to show them, number one, what prophesying is in the context of the community of believers but also that you don't have modern-day apostles and prophets. The canon is closed. From Genesis to Revelation, you have what you need, and it's sufficient. Yeah, Paul. Yes, uh, there was a person that one time said to me um, uh, out on the street or wherever, said, uh, I I just received a word of knowledge from the Lord. And then she would more poorly state her opinion of what she needed to be. And if you disagreed with that, you disagreed basically with the Lord. And so uh, she kind of steamrolled her over you, you know. And yep, uh, exactly. sometimes your ideas was good, and sometimes you just, oh, well, I'll just do it that way. <laughs> right. So by her doing that, she elevated what she said to thus saith the Lord. She is speaking no differently than Isaiah is in Scripture. And that is a misreading of the word of knowledge that we see in 1 Corinthians 14, and also the idea of prophesying and revelation as Paul used it. The big issue at Corinth was a lot of people were in... in Paul, what what he was really upset about is a lot of people were boasting and having wisdom. But the problem is their wisdom was a wisdom that was devoid of the cross. And so what's interesting in the context of the book of 1 Corinthians is true wisdom brings you back to the doctrine of the cross. And you can see that all the way back in 1 Corinthians 1. Remember, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the very what? Wisdom and power of God, right? So that's a word of wisdom has to do with gospel-centric implications and applications. It doesn't have to do with new revelation. So again, that's a misreading of the, the text of Scripture. And by her doing that, then, she elevates herself to a prophet. And who are you to say she's wrong? After all, she just heard it from God. <laughs> so you can see why this is important. I, don't, I can't tell you when I was a new Christian how many times I'd hear people say that the Lord had spoken to them. Yeah. And they said it like you're talking to your friend. Right. You know, like you're making a play in football and they were hearing all sorts of things from the Lord, what kind of toothpaste to use, and it was all the time. The Lord was telling me not to walk down the stairs. The Lord was telling me I shouldn't do this, and the Lord was telling me, and I'm thinking, well, I'm supposed to be a believer, and I never hear anything. And the reason I wasn't is because we don't have modern-day apostles and prophets. We are bound to what we know about God from Scripture. And so if you want to walk down the stairs, you have the freedom to do so. If you want to do a slant pattern rather than a post route in football, you have the freedom to do so. The Lord isn't binding you. You, can't, you don't have to do draw plays like Bob Schnelker, the old offensive coordinator, had us do all the time, and we'd lose. So you have freedom in Christ. We're bound to what he has in Scripture. So is that clear on this passage? Now, let me uh, point one more thing out. Notice here also when he says in verse 31, you may all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and may be exhorted, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And right after that, he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Notice there's order in the church. Okay? Now, I'll tell you why this matters. We are always called to understand who God is objectively from Scripture and its proclamation in the church, never subjectively. I was at a meeting years ago as a brand new Christian. I didn't have my theology together. And there was a man named Doug Stanton. And he was teaching at a particular meeting. And in the middle of his teaching, and I use that term loosely, He said he felt the Spirit calling him to stick his head in a fern bush. 
And so, can you imagine, I'm a brand new believer, and we're all standing there, and this guy just stuck his head in the fern bush. Well, why? Because the Lord was telling him that. Yeah, and because you can have modern-day apostles and prophets, well, the Lord's speaking to him, and that's what he did. Brothers and sisters, that's a God of confusion. How are you and I edified by someone sticking their head in the fern bush? Well, you're not, of course. Yeah, Bob. Earlier, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says in verse 3, but the person who prophesies, prophesies uh, lost my spot, speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. Amen. And so here it says they may be exhorted. So when we speak the gospel and its implications to one another, we are being encouraged. We're being exhorted. We're being comforted. Amen. We're knowing that our sins are forgiven. All right. Hallelujah. And these uh, charismatic prophets, and I've written about a lot of them, this guy out in Redding, California or whatever, they're not doing that. Right. They're confusing the church. Amen. Well said. Yeah. So before we move off of this slide, does everyone see where it says, let the others pass judgment? What you and I are to do then is to judge doctrine in light of Scripture. That's the big picture that I want you to see here out of 1 Corinthians 14. We have to judge people's doctrine and creeds and councils, as Bob was alluding to, in light of Scripture. That's what Paul's calling us to do here in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I'll keep moving on here. I want to show you that in the Old Testament... I'm sorry, Peter's got a... Oh, I'm sorry, somebody else has a comment? Yeah, yeah go ahead, Bill. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think... A lot of the problem is uh, lack of discernment within the church and the lack of correct biblical teaching, yeah. and then a, and then also a lot of false converts in the church that Amen. are that are thinking they're getting these revelations and they're and they're not. Well I said. I think that might be a be a problem with a lot of this going on within the church. Bill, well said. One of the fundamental doctrines Christians must come to terms with and get right mm-hmm. is who speaks for God. Exactly. If we don't get that right, then yeah. we always have some subjective authority outside of the canon, and yeah. you're done. That's why even with Roman Catholics, they will appeal to the apocryphal works. We yeah. have to establish, first of all, what is the canon, exactly. because what is the standard? And we have to show them, and that's why I use Romans 3, mm-hmm. because they claim that, remember, the Jews didn't have the correct canon? Yes. And Paul says, well, what benefit was there in Romans 3, 1, in being a Jew? He says, well, one in every way. They were given the very oracles of God. Exactly. And so Paul says that they had the right scriptures. Well, the Catholics said that the Jews didn't they have didn't it. Have. At Jamnia, the Council of Jamnia, they missed it. They should have incorporated the apocryphal works. So my point is, every time we sit down with somebody, we should be thinking about that. Yeah. What is the authority? What is their understanding of who speaks for God? Because if you can get them into the biblical worldview, yeah. where from, from Genesis to Revelation, that's God's revelation. These are the men who spoke for God. Yeah. Now you've got something you can use with them. Yeah. But if they're always saying, well, God told me this, or they're using some uh, pagan means of knowing God, they read the clouds or right. a liver or necromancy or whatever it is, yeah. what, what, what chance do you have to witness to them, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. And Reve- Revelation 22, 18 and 19, of course. Exactly. You know, anybody who adds to my word, that's kind of what I, what I mention to people when they say they've heard from God. Well, you're, you're speaking outside of Scripture. Well said. And we'll get to that at the very end. That's exactly where we're going to be driving it to. Yeah, well said, Bill. Yeah, thank you. Now, what I want to show... Oh, I'm sorry, we got one over here? Yeah, go ahead, Nancy. This is what we're called to do. And I hope I, hope I can ask the question right. Yeah. So when you're in prayer about something specific, you can have a revelation from God through his word. Is, is that how our prayers are answered? Yeah, what I would say is we always... Did I ask that question right? Yeah, it's very good. In other words, if you pray, does God reveal answers through his word? Now, here's what I would say is us praying to God is us speaking to God and laying out our concerns. But the scriptures is God speaking to us. But, But when I say God speaking to us through the scriptures, we want to be careful that we're not taking the scripture into a walkie talkie sense where you pray and then you're waiting for the response. You, you pray and you say, over. And then you pull up, you know, you're waiting for the squelch. <laughs> God, listen here, uh, 10, 9, or 1, 4, 5, Bravo's uh, in trouble. I need help, over. And then you pull out your Bible 
in your Bible and you go, Psh, God says, oh, yep, you're going to be just fine. Uh, do this or that. You know, that's not the understanding of Scripture. What we, you and I are bound to is to understand Scripture by understanding what the biblical writer meant. So the Bible can never mean what it never meant. Okay, so the meaning is always fixed, but there are many valid implications and applications. So what I would say is when we pray to God for a concern, we know that he's going to be working on our behalf, and we know that he providentially works things out for our good and for what we need, and he does answer prayer in that regard, and so we can trust him. We also can pray for wisdom, that he gives us understanding of Scripture, but it's not the walkie-talkie sense, but it's the sense that we understand what the Scripture is saying because of the biblical author's meaning, and then we can drive valid implications and applications. Does that make sense? Okay. So we can feel some peace in Absolutely. a decision that we've made by going through those steps. Exactly. We can feel peace by, by actually making a decision and feel like it was the correct one for us. Right. Let me give you an example. Um, Thank you. Let's say you had someone who said, you know, I don't know if I want to move to Philadelphia, but I, I may want to, and I'm, I'm thinking about moving my family there. And they lift it up to the Lord in prayer, and they say, Lord, uh, providentially works so that if this is to happen it works out, and closed doors or whatever. But they know they're free to go to Philadelphia. They're free not to go to Philadelphia. They're not sinning if they go to Philadelphia, and they're not sinning if they don't go to Philadelphia. Well, let's say they try to get to Philadelphia, and everything works out splendidly, and providentially it works out. Well, that's a decision that they made. They weren't sinning. Um, God obviously enabled them to do that, and they can just leave it at that. Do you see what I'm saying? There's no word of revelation that they're going to hear that this was the correct choice or the wrong choice. But I would dare say if God didn't want them there, providentially he can make it so that it never works. It's so disastrous. They have the desire to get out of Philadelphia. So does that make sense? But it's not going to be revealed to them mystically through some of, um, subjective means. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, Eric. Yeah. We've talked about this before. God does not take away our personal liberty Amen. through special revelations to Latter-day Prophets. See, we have Christian liberty. And if something is not forbidden by God's moral law, we're free to decide. Exactly. Now, we just need to do that. And here's another issue. We can't judge whether it was from God or not by how it works out. Yeah, amen. Providence covers everything. That's right. So if you buy a, I mentioned this before, you buy a car and a used car, and it turns out it needs all kinds of work. I used to think, oh, I wasn't listening to God. <laughs> right. Because if God told me what car to buy, it would go 300,000 miles with no right. repair. Right. <laughs> but that's not how it works. Right. God allows us the freedom to decide. Amen. And the freedom to work out things as we decide. If we buy a house, turns out the basement leaks. Well, figure out how to fix it. Yeah. That's part of living life in freedom under God. Amen. Bob, you and I used to have a saying, uh, it was, it's not a sin to be stupid. <laughs> and right. to do stupid things. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, Mike, go ahead. You had something. Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, when it says, all will judge. Right, all can yeah. judge. I just, I just think back to Berean seven or Acts seventeen eleven with the Bereans. They searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was so. So that's what Amen. we're called to do, you know, with when people right. are prophesying. And Bob just kind of addressed what I was thinking here. Current example: the presidential election. Right? Yeah. Uh, we've got Donald Trump who was elected, and we've got people saying, "Well, this was definitely of God." No, God is sovereign. And he appoints, sure. you know, kings, and, and the government is on his shoulders and such. But we say, okay, look, at his whole party was against him. The media was against him. Uh, he, he didn't have a budget. He had no ground game. Uh, you know, they pulled uh, uh, Cage's, Cage, you know, the governor of Ohio, pulls the ground game in Ohio. Uh, in Ohio. He's right. got all this stuff against him, but he gets elected. So oh, this is definitely of God. Well, Bob just said, we can't tell for sure by the way things turn out. Right. So I don't know if you need to add anything to that or whatever, but I, I was – just Bob did answer my question. You can't really tell. But we yeah. d we talked about this yeah. the Sunday before the election. Yeah. And what we talked about is we do know God's moral law. Exactly. So if know. that president who was just elected makes a decision that's immoral, 
like, well, let's have more abortions. We are free to say that's immoral. Yeah, I know. And that's against God's moral law because that's a category revealed in the Bible. But when it comes to a lot of things that could be this way or could be that way, in God's providence, we pray for our leaders. Yeah. And, uh, and trust that God is working. And I'm happy that I think we're going to be able to keep preaching the gospel without being thrown in jail. Yeah, I'm happy about that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I think well there's a couple other things that come into that too. Uh, you know, the doctrine of concurrence or compatibility, yes. right? Yeah. And you know, man, God is sovereign; man's responsible. How that exactly all works out, you know, that's yeah. um, a really high thing to contemplate, right? Maybe you want to add to that. And then yeah. we also see that you know, prayer does. However, this works with the sovereign God. I think we had a lot of people praying for this. Uh, evangelicals praying for an outcome, mm. and the prayers of a righteous man avail much. And, sure. and how does that all affect things? A sovereign Lord, a lot of heady stuff <laughs> that right. I keep bouncing around. So if you yeah. can enlighten me, I'd, I'd no, really appreciate it. First thing I just mentioned, thank you, Mike, very insightful. Um, the first thing I'd mention is, remember you'd mentioned the Bereans in Acts 17. They did weigh everything in light of Scripture. And what's so beautiful is there you see a descriptive passage talking about what these Bereans did. In 1 Corinthians 14, we're seeing a prescriptive passage, what we ought to do. And so it's both. All may prophesy, right? All may judge the revelation. And so we see the descriptive passage in Acts 17 where they're actually doing that. Yeah, in regards to the way God works sovereignly, in the think about in Daniel. Daniel decries that God raises up kings and he, he brings down kings. Uh, we know when Paul calls us to submit to the governing authorities in Romans 13, you have Nero, who's actually on the throne as Caesar and a wicked man. But what's interesting is God even uses these wicked leaders for his purposes. But like Bob is saying, is we always have to distinguish between the moral will of God and the decretive will. God may use wicked leaders to bring about his historical ends, but they will be sinning while they're doing it oftentimes. You see what I'm saying? So... Exactly. So we know certain things, namely what's revealed in Scripture. We can say that's moral, this is, this is not moral. Or I should say this is moral, this is immoral. And we can discern those things. But we can't discern necessarily what God is doing in history, His decretive will. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I'll, um, there we go, Brian, and then I'll go to Jim. Um, back to Nancy's original question. Yeah. If you're praying... And then she made the statement, if I feel at peace, well, you can feel at peace with the wrong decision. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, well said. Um, You can't go by Exactly right, that's right. I got somebody. Yep, yeah. Yeah, um, I get real confused where over here we're talking about judging. And I'm not very good at going back to a verse in the Bible, but I know that somewhere there it says, do not judge others otherwise you will be judge or whatever clarify for me the difference between this judging i just yeah this is in matthew 7 where jesus jesus says do not judge lest you be judged for in the same manner that you judge others it will be judged unto you so right so the prohibition there is not a prohibition against all judgment but specifically hypocritical judgment okay let me give you an example if i were i got rebuked one time because i was in the club and I was witnessing the gospel to a guy. And I was telling him I was a wretched sinner who needed Christ. He was a wretched sinner who needed Christ. And when I told him he was a wretched sinner who needed Christ, he said, well, judge not. You're judging me. How do you, I don't need a Savior. Why are you judging me as a sinner? I said, well, wait a minute. Can you finish the rest of the verse, judge not? And he couldn't, of course. It's the only verse that many leftists know, uh-huh. correct? <laughs> and only portion. So I finished the rest of the verse says, Do not judge, for in the way that you judge, it will be judged unto you. I said, what's being prohibited there is not all forms of judgment, but hypocritical judgment, where I would hold him to a standard that I'm not holding myself to. So I'm holding myself to the same standard because I'm a sinner who needs Christ, and he's a sinner who needs needs Christ. So do you see how I'm not judging in a hypocritical way? I'm holding him to the same standard. So that's what's being prohibited there. In fact, the rest of the passage, you're called to judge. That's the Matthew 7 passage where we're called to, to judge the prophets by their fruit, both their doctrine and their deeds. So in the context of the entire passage, we're demanded that we pass judgment to discern what's from God and what's not. Bill, here's the key. 
we judge what can be known, what can be known. Yes, very good. But we can't judge what can't be known. Yes, very good. And the hidden motives of somebody else's heart, we don't know. Exactly. If we say, I'm holier than you to another Christian, (laughs) well, how do I know that? Right, right. Be safer to say, I'm a wretched sinner. I don't know if I'm holier than anybody. Right, amen. Okay. Yeah, in fact, Bob... Thank you for me. First Corinthians three, Paul even says that he doesn't know his own heart. Remember uh, uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is desperately wicked and is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? The implied answer, no one. So we can't even know our own heart. So therefore, we can never say I'm holier than this person or that person. That's something we can't know. And so even the apostle Paul said he waits for the Lord to come to reveal what's actually in his heart and his motivations. Yeah. So, oh yeah, Beth. I was just remembering King Hezekiah's prayer for restored health. And then 15 years later, Manasseh is born, and then Manasseh turns into a wicked, wicked ruler. So we don't know what what God's purposes are. We just go at the time. That's right. That's right. And you know what's interesting about that, Beth, is we can't chalk that up to a wicked desire to want to be healed. But yet, so you have, in other words, Hezekiah has the moral freedom to pray that prayer, and yet providentially he didn't know how it would work out in history. You're exactly right. And that shows the moral will was not being thwarted of God. You know, he was praying within that, and the decretive will was something that probably was less than what Hezekiah would have wished. So, yeah, well said. Very good. Very good example. Yeah, Ed. What I'm taking away from all this is I'm sorry, did I miss somebody? Just simply what I'm taking away from all this is something Bob said a few minutes ago, just a simple statement that providence covers everything because God is not bound by time, and we are. Right. So that also explains, uh, you know, judging other people. Uh, You have no idea because God is is, uh, author of all this, and so people are doing whatever they do. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and well said, that gets into the category of what we can know, what we can't know. What I can know is that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person needs Jesus Christ. When he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by him, that's all revealed. And so I can say every single person universally needs Jesus Christ, and I'm not falsely judging them. But if I say to someone, boy, you know what, that person, oh, they, there's no way they can be saved. Look how wicked they are. Well, those are things, obviously, I can't know. I yeah, can't know what God is. God. Exactly. Yep. So that would be a case. So those categories of what you can know and what you can't know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, are exceedingly important. Yep. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up again. Now, one thing I want to do is we get into prophecy. I want you to see that in the Old Covenant, there was two different tests that the Old Covenant community that is, the people of Israel were commanded to engage in. One was a doctrinal test, what I like to call forth-telling. Remember, prophets did two things. They forth-told, that is, they called people to right living, right doctrine. But there's also foretelling the future. So when Israel was called to judge their prophets, they were to judge their doctrine, but also their predictions. And I want you to see both. First of all, notice the doctrinal test here in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. Notice it says here, Moses writes, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Now, why shouldn't you listen? He says, Because they said, Let us go after other gods. Right? It's the doctrinal test. I'll keep reading. He says, For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice in the underlying portion, let us go after other gods. Is that true doctrine or is that false doctrine? Well, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's false doctrine. Here's a doctrinal test. If any prophet leads you away from Yahweh, he's not to be listened to, even if what he says or predicts comes true, his sign. Okay. Now, think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. Remember, he feared for those at Corinth that they would fall for a different gospel, a different spirit, and a different Christ. We see that. Remember, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, that even if an angel of light from heaven had preached a different gospel than the one he'd preached, let him be what? Anathema. 
he anathematized any different gospel. So we still have that same call to judge doctrinally what teachers are saying today. Now, here's a test that I don't think is valid today for us. We can certainly use it, but I don't think it's valid because we don't have modern-day prophets who give binding revelation. But this is one that the Old Covenant people had to wrestle with because there was a continuation of the prophetic line. Let me show you. This is a prediction test, foretelling. This is Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22. This is after the promise again and continues the promise that one day God would raise up a prophet, which culminates in Christ, but there was many before him. He says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, that's like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now stop there. That's exactly what Jesus says, as I'll show you later in Matthew. And in the gospel, he says the same thing when he says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever does not receive you does not receive me. You see this in Matthew 10, 40, and we'll come to that. Okay, so Jesus uses the same standard there. But notice here in verse 20, he says, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Verse 21, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which Yahweh has not spoken? Notice verse 22, when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. There's the prediction test. If they give a prediction and that does not come true, they're not a prophet from God and they're not to be listened to. Now, my claim today as we live in the church, there are no modern-day apostles and prophets. So of those two tests, we have both a doctrinal test and a prediction test. I can say if someone's making predictions, I'm not going to listen to them. Why? Because I know that there aren't apostles and prophets. So even if they make predictions, I am not going to use them or listen to them. They are not an authoritative spokesman for God. Okay, they are not. There are no modern-day apostles and prophets as we're going to lay out. However, that first test that I showed you in Deuteronomy 19, the doctrinal test is still valid. That's what Paul was calling us to do in 1 Corinthians 14. So the doctrinal test is still valid. The predictive test, to me, is a moot point because you don't have modern-day apostles and prophets. Now, as I say that, we should prove biblically that there are no modern-day apostles and prophets. Now, how do we go about doing it? Well, again, I mentioned at the outset that in a sense, the whole battle for true doctrine is a battle to understand who speaks for God. And what we have to do is to say, who ultimately speaks for God? Well, it's Jesus and his apostles and prophets. Now, how do we know that? Well, let me show you a passage that I think starts proving this. Matthew 17, 4 through 5. Here's the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, you have, what, Peter, James, and John, they're up on the mount. And it says, this is the Father speaking, while he, that's the Father, was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I'm sorry that he probably was actually, was that... Bob, do you have your Bible there? Yes. Can you look up Matthew 17, 4 through 5? I just was wondering who was speaking there at that time. I want to make sure I know it's either God or it's Peter. Because remember, he speaks presumptuously there. says he was transformed excuse me he was transformed in front of them and his face shone like the sun and it was white as light moses and elijah appeared then peter said lord it's good for us to be here so that's his boast yeah and if you want i will make three tabernacles while he was speaking a bright cloud covered them a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son thank you so, Peter spoke presumptuously. Yeah, he spoke, but he really should have kept his mouth shut. All right. So I just want to remind myself, that was Peter speaking presumptuously, saying things that he shouldn't have. And so God interjects and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's right from Deuteronomy 18.15. It's also an inclusion. It's a blending of, of Psalm 2.7. Okay? Now, why is that important? Well, here we have an authoritative word from God saying, this is his authoritative spokesperson. 
This is the prophet par excellence, and that's Jesus. So we know that Jesus speaks for God. Now, what I want to do is show you a link between, we know Jesus speaks for God, but now I want to show you a link between Jesus, who speaks for God, in fact, he is God, and his apostles. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 10.40. I've already cited this, but let's just look at it. It's good to see it with our own eyes. Matthew 10.40. Matthew 10.40. Very important verse. This is one that should be in our back pockets because it links Jesus, the authoritative spokesman for God, with his apostles. Okay, now, one of the reasons I became very well acquainted with this verse was because I was refuting, remember the red letter Christians? I think they're still out there, men like Jim Wallace. They only believe what Jesus said, right? Well, Jesus said that we should believe what his apostles and prophets said, right? His apostles are linked here in Matthew 10.40. He sends them out. It says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, the idea of sending someone out, that's the idea of the apostolos. The one who is sent is the spokesman for the king. In the Old Testament, there was an office called the shaluak. It's actually a participle. It's the one who was sent. Does everyone remember that case where David had to, he was running from Saul, and he was actually taking care of a man named Nabal's vineyard. Does everyone remember Nabal? Well, Nabal, what did his name mean? It means fool. And he really was foolish. He lived up to his name. Why? Because when David, the king of Israel, who God had chosen, is on the run, he had been protecting Nabal's flock, and he simply wanted some sustenance to live. What does Nabal do? He turns down David and his mighty men. That's a foolish thing to do, is it not? So, do you remember when David sent out his messenger? It was a shaluak, one who was sent. The point is that one who was sent by David had the very authority of David, the future king of Israel, so that when that one who was sent was mistreated by Nabal the fool, it was as if Nabal the fool was mistreating David the king. Okay, that's how they understood things back then. When Jesus sends out his apostolos, his apostles, and they're mistreated or not listened to, they're not received, it is the same thing as doing it to the king who sent them. That's the idea of the apostolos, okay? So that's how we know that these men spoke for God. Now, I might give you an idea, but it's not a word from God. When the scriptures were written by the apostles, it was from God, wasn't it? Now, if I'm giving you a valid implication or application from scripture, that's from God. But my point is, any religious man who tells you something it's not from God, necessarily. But when the apostles spoke and they wrote, that was from God. And we have it authoritatively told to us by Jesus himself. Let me give you another passage that links Jesus to the spokesman for God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also excuse me, through whom also he made the world. Now, notice he says in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. So the son has spoken and the son has delegates that speak for him, which are what? The apostles. So therefore we know that we have revelation from God, from Jesus Christ and his chosen spokespersons. And this is why in Jude 3, we see that yes, we are to contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Because Jesus Christ has ascended and his apostles are no longer on the scene, you no longer have continuing revelation. Is that clear? Okay, and I'll show you another passage that alludes to that. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking, uh, like that last uh, sentence that you were saying about um, how, yes, God is the one that, you know, if you, if you say something that's true, it is, it is really from God. And it, there's a passage that I liked uh, that came to mind. Let me just click on here. Sure. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belongs or belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then uh, I was also thinking of, uh, for instance, prayers. I know God does answer prayers, and sometimes he doesn't answer just by a word out of Scripture. Sometimes he literally 
you know, does something. So, you know, sure. not that he doesn't always, you know, like, uh, and I don't want to go away from this verse, too, that says, um, even if I or a uh, angel from God were to proclaim from you a gospel other than yeah. the one you've already heard, let him be accursed. So there's, uh, you know, there's obviously, we can't go anything away from the gospel, what we've already known, but at yeah. the same time, God is, you know, our Father. He does see us. He does care for our needs, and he will answer prayers as, you know, it Amen. honors him. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with you, Eric. I think God certainly answers prayer, um, and he, he's not bound by anything that we, uh, there, there's no formulaic, ritualistic way that he does things. He answers prayer. And he can also say no. He can say yes, and he can say yes and wait. He can say all sorts of things. But my point is, is we don't always know what God is doing. Um, we don't use the scriptures like a walkie-talkie where we speak and then we wait um, subjectively to hear something. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, my whole point is objectively we know that the apostles and prophets of the New Testament spoke authoritative words. Mark, who wrote the scriptures, our gospel of Mark, he was not an apostle, but he was associated with the apostles, and I would call him a prophet. And so, and I'll, I'll say to Ephesians 2.20 here in just a moment, when Mark writes something, I'm bound to that morally, okay? When he reveals something in the gospel, if I write to you something, you test what I write in light of what the scriptures say. That's my whole point. And so no matter what a man says today, we always judge it in light of scripture, the established canon. Now, one of the passages I want to get to is Ephesians 2.20 because I think it's a very important implication in it. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians 2.20. Here in Ephesians 2.20, Paul is talking about the church being built, and it's past tense. He's using an aorist passive. And what's very interesting is he's also alluding to Isaiah 28.16, which is this putting and laying the, the cornerstone of the foundation for the people of God. And this idea then of the cornerstone in Isaiah's day was that there was a faithful remnant who was still faithful to God and his precepts, and believed in his promises, well, that ultimately is fulfilled in Messiah. Ultimately, every person fails except the deposited stone. So listen to what he says. He says, having been built, this is the church, this is Ephesians 2.20, having been built, heiress passive participle, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So stop there. A lot of people have looked at that cornerstone and they try to claim that it's actually a keystone that is in the archway that holds like an archway together? Well, it can't be, and here's why. In Isaiah 28, 16, it's an allusion to that. God lays his stone of stumbling in Zion, and people stumble over it. Well, it's on the ground. You don't stumble over something in an archway, the keystone, okay? So the idea then is what he's getting at is this keystone, or excuse me, this cornerstone is what holds the foundation together. So Christ is what holds the foundation here we have a genitive construction where the foundation literally consists of the apostles and prophets. So what is the foundation of the church? It's the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone that holds that foundation together. So no cornerstone, no foundation, okay? But no foundation, no church. And you only lay a foundation once, correct? So you don't have multiple foundations. Just as you don't have multiple Christ, you therefore don't have multiple apostles and prophets. That's the idea, okay? So what's interesting is when you, for instance, we're learning the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes from Joel 2.28 through 32, and he talks about how in the last days the sons and daughters would prophesy. Well, that prophecy is what we have in the church the lesser prophesying is what I would call it, where you and I have valid implications and applications of scriptures. But there was also prophets associated with the apostolic age. Let me turn your attention to that. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, verses 26 through 28. I'll show you an apostle, or excuse me, not an apostle, but a prophet linked with the apostles. And by the way, there was other prophets linked and talked about in Acts, Acts 21.9, you have Philip the Apostle, his daughters were prophetesses, okay? But notice here in Acts eleven twenty six through 28, here we have Agabus. It says, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they moved to the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, 
Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Okay, now here you have a prophet who is speaking, foretelling, or excuse me, foretelling prophecy about a future event. And sure enough, it happens. During, during the reign of Claudius, I believe it's 41 to 54 AD, you have a tremendous famine that breaks forth. Now, Agabus would be a prophet that we were just reading about in Ephesians 2.20. He's speaking knowledge about future events, but do we have someone like that today? Nope. That foundation has been laid. Just as you don't have multiple Christ, you don't have multiple apostles and prophets. Therefore, if someone says, this future event is going to happen, therefore I'm a prophet of God, I don't listen. I don't listen. That foundation's been laid. And these prophets and apostles, they spoke for God, and they're off the scene of history. Christ and his foundation has already been laid. It will not be laid again. Yeah, Peter. Here a question just to double back on the prior yeah. verse in Ephesians on uh, 220, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Yeah. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone is the foundation both and her. Yeah, so the image there would be the foundation consists of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is in that foundation right. as well. He's the cornerstone that holds the foundation together. Right. But what's interesting is we know that a lot of people say, well, actually, that's a keystone being referred to. Well, no, because the allusion to Isaiah 28, 16 is so apparent. This is the foundation that was stumbled over. Right, but the foundation the is both. Exactly. Apostles, Consist prophets, and Christ. Yeah, and by the way, there's some who will claim exactly right. So it's apostles, prophets, and Christ. That's the foundation. Some will claim that the apostles and prophets are in fact the same. They are not. And you can read uh, Dan Wallace has a wonderful article. It's a distortion of the Granville Sharp rule grammatically. It gets beyond where we want to go today. But um, no, the apostles and prophets are different people. Also, one important thing, a lot of people say, well, these prophets are just the Old Testament prophets. Not so fast. If Paul had intended to say or intended to refer to Old Testament prophets, he would probably would have said prophets and apostles. But I think the word order here is important. He's referring to New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. And those are off the scene today. Why? Well, Christ isn't here. The foundation has been laid. We have a faith once for all handed down to the saints. Another passage that you may want to consider is one that Bob had uh, turned me on to the implications of years ago. It was 1 Corinthians 15. Remember in verse 8, Paul says, last of all, he's talking about the appearances of the resurrected Christ. He says, last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. The term last of all, eschatos, is literally last in a series. So if, he's, if Paul was the last one that the resurrected Christ appeared to, and it's necessary to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ to be an apostle, you can't have any more apostles. And the prophets are tied to apostolic authority, therefore you can't have apostles and prophets today. Are you with me? Last of all. Notice Paul didn't say, well, last of all for now. Um, last until someone's going to come later. He said, last of all, he appeared to me as one who was untimely born. Again, 1 Corinthians 15.8. Yeah. I almost hate to participate because we've had such a lot of participation, but this is good. And I uh, was stumbled on this just a few days ago. Yeah. And it seems like it, it's Ephesians 4, um, verse 11. And it says, uh, and he meaning God, uh, well, he meaning Jesus, I believe here. He, well, uh, going back to Ephesians 4, verse 10. Yeah. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens yeah. so that he might fill all things. And then the, here's the thing that grabbed me the other day. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So. Yeah. What we're, what we're talking about here today is that we've, got, we've, we've already gotten the prophets in the full sense of the word and the apostles. Exactly. And, and that's the foundation. Exactly. And now we have evangelists and pastor teachers exactly. as the successors to that. Well said. Exactly right. Um, beautiful passage, citation from Psalm 68. 
Just as God gave the Levites for the edification of the Israelites in the Old Covenant, He gave the apostles and prophets in the New and for the edification of the people. So God gives people His gifts. You're exactly right. That foundation's been laid, but we still have pastors and teachers today. Well said, Eric. Very good cross-reference. I'm sorry. I, I know we're out of time, but I'll let Dana finish, and then we'll have to close up here. Just, just going back to yeah. the, the judging discussion yeah. for a minute, whenever people tried to tell me that Matthew 7 prohibits all judging, I always point them to uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Know you not that we shall judge angels right. how much more things that pertain to this life. So it tells us that we exactly. should Exactly. Well right? said. Well said. Great cross-reference. Thank you, Dana. Beautiful. Well, with that, brothers and sisters, let me just bring it all together to say, never be led astray by a prophet today. Why? Because there are none. It's that simple. And we have to know that, that one day the world is going to go after the false prophet and give their allegiance to the false Christ. But you and I should never fall for someone who says, thus saith the Lord, apart from Scripture. There are no apostles and prophets today. We have an established canon from Genesis to Revelation. God has spoken once and for all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for these dear brothers and sisters and the fact that they love you so. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to enable us to have opportunity to share these categories so that other people would not be deceived into following false teachers and false prophets. I pray, Lord, that the church at large in our country and around the world would know that you alone have spoken through your son and his apostles and prophets. And Lord, that people would realize that the canon is, is closed. I pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunity to proclaim your gospel. Be with us as we go. I pray for Bob in the sermon. I pray for his voice. I pray that we would have ears to hear what he has to say. We lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.